Hello, everyone. I'm back with Aaron White after our short adjournment with the Queen's Gambit. And we're going to break down chess films in general because both of us researched a ton for the Queen's Gambit and got obsessive about chess films and really went on a bender. And uh, we just kept trading like, oh, I'm watching this and I'm watching this. And we would keep up with each other and keep track. And so by the end of our uh, anticipation and build up towards the Queen's Gambit, we had five extra chess films we'd each watch so we like we have to do another episode on this to talk about them so welcome back oh thank you yeah what we were really doing during that break in between was we've been playing 20 games of chess y'all and uh, i can tell you i am 0 for 20 <laughs> <laughs> i would be if we actually played yeah i'm not even that great though so maybe one of these days we will i'll, I'll try to send you my link yeah it would be kind of maybe we should that'd be fun it's fun. Uh, what the heck? Computer chess is awesome. <laughs> You're going to turn me on to Formula One racing. And, I'm and then you can turn, turn me on, on to chess. I, fair is fair. Yes, that's our trade-off. <laughs> so first, before we get into the specifics of the movies, watching so many, what are some of the recurring motifs and themes that you noticed in this genre that really stuck out to you? Trouble genius. <laughs> I mean, I think that is the thing. And we talked a little bit about it in our Queen's Gambit episode about how most of the films that you see about chess are featuring some sort of either socially awkward or like legitimately like mentally unstable chess genius. And they seem to put forth the idea that in order to have the kind of brain that is required to navigate this insane amount of numerical permutations and strategies that you then lose something else in your ability to interact with the world and to be stable in, in a lot of different areas. And so it makes sense to me, but that is definitely one of the most common tropes and you know, we can talk about what I like and don't like about it maybe as we go through the films because there's times that I, I don't mind it and there's times that I kind of like I, I would like something else. Like I said, Queen's Gambit, right? I like that some of the characters in that are not always like wackadoodle obsessive. Some of the chess players are just really darn good chess players. They're like grandmaster level chess players or whatever, but they're stable and calm. So that's like probably one of the big common themes that I see throughout these films. And then... Russia, <laughs> it, everything wants to come back to like Russia. And that stems from the fact that the Russians have historically been the dominant chess society. And it's no different than, I don't know, take football, for example, in America or some other sport that is generally played here, basketball for decades and decades. Like we were here in the United States, the wellspring of that sport. This is where all of the talent lived. And so if you wanted to break into that, it took time for the rest of the world to catch up. Europe, soccer, right? It's the opposite. The United States is fighting to get into the elite level of soccer, just like we were fighting to get into the elite level of chess. And so Almost all of these in some level pull in that Russian dominance and brilliance in some way. Those are all really good themes that I've noticed as well. Specifically, the Russia is so prominent in many of these films. We love to focus on the Cold War and that Russia-US emphasis on chess. Chess as a sport, okay, we're going to we're calling it sport, it's a sports podcast, an intellectual sport, is also interesting because it's very accessible, like soccer, you mentioned soccer. Almost anyone can muster up a board with 64 squares and figure out pieces that do work. And another thing I noticed about chess is that it serves as a good 
narrative tool or device for stories about coming up out of poverty or coming up out of or an orphanage or coming up out of the slums of Africa or coming up uh, out of in some of films we haven't watched. Like there's a new film with John Leguizamo, where he's a teacher of a lower socioeconomic school in Miami, right? It's kind of like the, the great film Stand and Deliver, where like these rough and tumble kids, he teaches them chess and they go and win the championship. There's another one where we're not going to cover with Cuba Gooding Jr., where he takes at-risk youths and he's an ex-con and teaches them chess to get out of poverty, to get out of the more dangerous parts of the city and to give them some purpose and direction. And so I think that's another one motif I've noticed because you covered madness really well. As you said, I think that the madness theme is fascinating, but sometimes poorly done. And we're going to get into that on some of these films. So I just didn't appreciate the treatment of it in ways because it's one of my favorite themes. Like one of my all-time most beloved movies is just Pie by Aronofsky, his very first one where it deals with madness. And I think if they would treat it with that level of sophistication and artistry, I would like it, but they don't tend to. So chess is a fascinating sport to think about because it is so mental and there's so many logistics and strategies, as you said, to the game. Our first film we're going to focus on today is Searching for Bobby Fischer. And what I loved about this one was it was really about not only the strategies of playing the game, but the strategies of how to manage a young talent. And it was more about how to nurture and mentor someone who's coming into this hobby or recreational pastime or sport or obsession and how to do it in a way that's conducive for success on all fronts, psychologically and socially and interpersonally. And so I think this is more of a film about nurturing than about chess, but it's a really great film. What did you take from searching for Bobby Fischer? I love that it's about a kid and not an adult because there is a whole different world to explore. And one of my favorite things is getting to see a child who is talented in the sports world and how that talent is nurtured by the people in their lives. And it's almost always a conflict. You don't hardly ever have a child who is born to parents who can execute and navigate that crazy world in a perfect way. It's either going to go one of two ways. You're either going to have the child talent that is born to the parent talent, where that person expects a certain level of greatness because you're born into it, i.e. a King Griffey and a King Griffey Jr. And not that they grew up that way, but like, you know, son playing the same sport as the dad kind of thing. Or you're going to have like sometimes the opposite of that, where the parent has no clue what they're doing. A lot of times finding themselves in the position to want to exploit that child and that child's talent in order for their own gain, oftentimes not even from an insidious perspective, but just from a perspective of you have the ability to make me money. I mean, it happens in the Queen's Gambit, right? Right off the bat, the adopted mother, she's like, oh, you just made money in this tournament. And she's like doing calculations in her head and you can tell like this could help us, right? As a family, it could help us both. So it doesn't have to be a negative or, or nasty thing, but it's a, an ex exploitation nonetheless. And so for me getting to see in this one, parents trying to figure this out, a dad who is genuinely wanting to help his son, but doesn't know what his son needs. And his son is too young to A, probably know what he needs either, but B, to express and tell his dad what he needs. And so it's a complicated relationship that I can really resonate with. And I, if I go on a slight tangent, but like my son was in select soccer for years. He played from, we randomly put him in at one time, mommy and me soccer. 
with they were just looking for something to do over the summer and he enjoyed it and he stayed in it and just got better and better but he was kind of uniquely talented he didn't want to practice he didn't have real interest in any of that stuff he just loved games and just was kind of naturally really good and so he got to that select level and it came to a point a couple years ago where he just wanted to quit like he was done and i had a harder time than he did like he just wanted to be done with the thing that he was talented at doing but as a parent i had my own set of expectations that i wanted to put on him so i was like well let me get you you know these tools to get better let me you know the whole time he was in this i'm like let me get you these coaches or how can i push you to get you to this great level and i and i had to understand and come to acknowledge like my child has a different goal and, and i'm not i can't push my own agenda on him and we see some of this in bobby fisher and i think it's played out really naturally to how a parent goes through that just from my own perspective and so i love that about it man i the other big thing that i wanted to mention that i love specifically is the addition of Lawrence Fishburne and his character, really thin Lawrence Fishburne, actually kind of looks like Will Smith Lawrence Fishburne when you take a screenshot, if you do this. But you have a black man who is kind of hanging out in the park and playing tennis. And this is a stereotype that is generally going to have a very negative connotation to it. This man is homeless or this man is dangerous or this man just has a 40 underneath the table and you need to be careful. This is something to be feared. But instead, this is a character that develops an incredible friendship with this child, teaching him valuable lessons along the way that end up being the kind of lessons that merge with the technical level, like expert lessons he gets. And he needs that balance of both of these, these types of things in order to really become unique and the best ever, right? Which is what we think of Bobby Fischer as. And so that relationship, both how it affects you know, the kid in the movie, but also how it affects me just watching this and seeing a positive portrayal of that relationship. It's really, really refreshing to me. Yeah, this this movie is so refreshing to watch. I watched it immediately after I watched The Queen's Gambit again, and I hadn't seen it since a child, but I remembered it so strongly. My parents loved this movie, and now I know why they loved it, because it really speaks to parenting. That's what this movie is about. And there's two in my mind, major foils in this film, the foil between Pandolfini and Vinny. And I'm not trying to say they're adversaries. They're not against each other. They're just two different approaches that both work and maybe they're better off synthesized together. But I found that really interesting. And the other foil is, it's not so strong, but I think it's the young star of the film, right, Josh, his mother and father and their approaches. And I think it's just the traditional mother and father roles. But I also like that they were toned down. The mother wasn't too maternal and the father wasn't too like aggressive or pushy either. But this film is a, a really interesting dissection of that because it shows that you can take so many different approaches to raising a child and to setting them up for success and that it isn't easy. The answers aren't clear. And that's what I really, really love because there's these moments in which the parents mess up or the coaches mess up. Ben Kingsley as Pandolfini does want the best for Josh after he's hired to be his tutor, but he has different errors or gaffes in which he seems like a real jerk. This movie's about a little boy and all he wants is a little award, a little certificate, and he starts throwing them on the table, right? And the mother has to kick him out. And later that night, we then see Josh's father defending Pandolfini. So the father says, our son needs to learn how to be stronger, right? He needs to get a backbone. And she tells him there's a difference between being weak and being decent. And I loved her focus on sensitivity and her appreciation of sensitivity. We don't get that a lot. And so we get the questions here, like, is being great at something everything? 
is being a good person, everything. And how do we balance the two? And they merge in such organic instances. I think that the scene, to bring up one last one, between the father and his school teacher is one of the strongest ones in the film. I really love this scene. And it's really tense because the father becomes quickly very defensive in what he believes to be insults coming from Josh's school teacher, who's trying to say he needs to be in class more, he needs to be focused more on education as well. And the father's saying, this boy has a talent that surpasses either of ours as grown adults. He's capable of greatness on a level we don't even know. And you can't diminish that. And both have really good points. He needs to still be a kid, but you don't want to also ignore talent and skill because it is a gift. And so you have to have this really beautiful balance and you have to show love and caring towards it and not demand too much of it, but try to encourage it and push it ahead. And it's tricky and there's no clear answers. And by the end, when you have Lawrence Fishburne and Ben Kingsley and his parents all there, all supporting him in this tournament, you see that it really takes the most corny cliche phrase, a village to raise a person, right? It takes all different approaches. And that's the beautiful thing about this movie. It really does a mature and refined job at showing this lesson that we all know to be true, but it's more nuanced than just a bromide that we throw out on a day-to-day basis. Now, I know we both love this movie. Was there anything at all that you felt was a little bit of a blunder or do you think it's just pitch perfect? I don't know that it's pitch perfect. It's delightful and charming, maybe to a fault at times, in a sense. Like there's a lack of incredibly impactful singular moments for me and that's typically what i go to when i like hit my five star level you know for me it means something in that movie is undeniably memorable four star i can remember things and they're they're great moments but like a five star has something that just shook me in some way uh, or it's incredibly rewatchable just on loop as we talked about, about some of the sports movies that I love. And so, yeah, there's just something that's not quite there for me as far as like perfection. But man, I don't have any major complaints really like that stick out either. I can't point to one or two things and say, I dislike this. I think it's a really phenomenal movie. It's just, it's sweet and touching and it fits a niche. And, I, and honestly, I think in, a, in maybe some ways, so I watched it first when I started my binging before any of the other chess films and then also before the Queen's Gambit. But I will say this in hindsight, like I think it even looks better to me now that I have things to compare it to because I would not to give away a ranking, sorry, but like I would put this above all of them still. So I think for me, it's about as good of a chess thing as you can get. And it's never going to hit quite five stars for me because I don't care about chess. You know, and when we're playing chess, it's just, it's whatever for me. What I do like about this movie is they do hit on the different types of chess though. And that's what I like. I, again, I love that you have the stiff and structured expectations of the elite chess world with the reckless creativity of the street game and I'm neither of those I'm I'm so reckless I don't even know what I'm doing and I'm unpredictable to a fault but uh yeah I like that aspect of it quite a bit but I don't have anything really negative to say yeah me neither and my favorite part is what you just mentioned I like that it's more about the philosophical strategies whether it be more formal and learning the rules and the analytic side and the stiffer elite approach to education or the more instinctive approach that he gets at Washington Square Park and how you can get an education in either world. And I love that it always shows like a duality and then reconciles the two. Uh, there's a line just to finish 
I guess what I'd have to say about this film that the father says, and he says, it's not a game, but it's not silly either. It's an art. And I feel like it really knows that it's not this, it's not that it's both. And it's everything in between. And it's something greater, which is art. And I just think that really wraps up this film's approach to everything. It's I'm going to show you two different sides. I'm going to show you black and I'm going to show you white. I'm going to show you in the academy and I'm going to show you on the street. I'm going to show you you know, left and I'm going to show you right, right? It's just going to show you each side of the coin. And then it's going to say, neither side's right, neither side's better. You need both. You need to synthesize both. You need to harmonize both. And I think that's always a great lesson. So I love this film. So moving right along, let's get into Queen of Catway. And this was a real surprise for me. Uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, I knew was great from my memories as a kid, but this was a real surprise. I was endeared by this start to finish. But before I throw my thoughts out there, I just want to hand it over to you. What was your initial take watching this movie? Stupid Aaron, why didn't I watch this sooner? And I don't have that a lot of times, but I feel like I did this film a disservice. I don't have that feeling when I'm talking about older older films because it is what it is you get to a movie when you get to a movie but 2016 was my first year as a film critic and I was voting by that point in awards and such and so I feel you know like a responsibility to have a wide breadth of knowledge about the movies that came out that year and I intentionally let this slide by it happens from time to time usually I end up coming back to those films and really loving them I'm actually noting a couple in my head right now but this came out in the fall I remember kind of being interested in it and then Disney completely failed to make any sort of push for this there was no almost no marketing it was just kind of a quiet release it came and it went and that was that I hate that now because this is a beautiful movie this is a Disney movie that harkens back to what Disney used to be or what we thought Disney used to be with their family films in the you know 80s and 90s era and so I think it's great the acting is phenomenal I mean I love David Oyelowo I love all of the actresses it is a tragic tragic story you know the the youngest sister in this film actually passed away I believe due to uh, cancer or heart condition in the last couple of years and that is just awful when you think about that but what really stood out to me in this interestingly this is not about the chess I do enjoy the fact that there's chess and soccer in this one. That's kind of cool because there's a coach who is all about both. And I love that dichotomy of showing that someone can actually be interested in something physical and something mental, two different types of games. Like it doesn't have to be either or. That's cool. And I really love just Uganda in this film and the way that they depict it. It's so real and so natural going to the market. There's poverty, but it is not shown to be this war-torn, miserable, you know, despite its lack of wealth, like completely torn to pieces, brutal to live in kind of place. And a lot of times when we have movies that are set in Africa and African countries, that is the way that we see them. We don't get to see them from the ground level of families that are perfectly happy and content living where they live and are proud of where they live. And I felt like we got that depiction in this movie. And so, you know, it's a really sweet story developing a young woman, again, kind of like Queen's Gambit, a young colored woman at that, who you would think has even less opportunity, but just the way that she loves the game, works to master the game. It has, you know, a really nice ending moment with the heartstrings being tugged and you know her being able to 
help pull her family out of poverty, you know, and it's, it's all about young girls succeeding and being accepted in the world for what they're good at. So it's almost like a, an advertisement for STEM too, in a kind of way. I mean, I know STEM is different than chess, but it speaks to the same thing. It's young women who are smart. They need people to back them and to give them opportunities. And, and it is an area that our world has failed in so many ways for decades and, and centuries. It's, it's always been the men that get the opportunities. And we need to do the same thing that we do for men, for women, because then we get to see amazing stories like the one that this film is depicting. Well said. And it's a very reaffirming film because we get this young star, this young girl, Fiona, who's preternaturally smart. She's born with a natural, organic, just command of chess. She immediately gravitates towards it and understands it. What's crazy is we get a, told to us again and again that she's actually illiterate. She, she can't read the books. She doesn't know that side of the game and it doesn't matter. She knows it on a different level. And I always love that lesson is that smarts come in many forms. We, we tend to overemphasize bookish smarts or the smarts of academia or the smarts of formal society, but they come in all forms. And there are people who are perhaps illiterate yet brilliant. And so I love that it just illuminates that for us through this young girl who comes up through chess to be a celebrity of her village, to, to go to Russia. I love the moments when these you know, young kids, the young troop that David Iola, I, I love him as the actor. I can never pronounce his name. I apologize. But Robert Katendi, he plays and it's he's such a heartwarming character. He's such a selfless individual. And the fact that this is based on a true story and that credit scene really works for me. I know those are kind of uh, sometimes overdone when you get the actor and the, the real life person, but they did it so well. And you could see the charm and charisma of the real life people when they came and stood next to the actors who played them. I just believe even from that credit sequence that they did a real authentic job of depicting these people who are real life heroes in their little worlds. And he has so many great scenes. Uh, perhaps my favorite scene was with his wife when he has to tell her that he was offered an engineering job, but he cannot leave the pioneers, which is the name of their chess team. And she tells, him like why are you beating yourself up and you think she's going to scold him and then she says for doing what is right right and it's just one of those great moments that might be a little unrealistic because most people would not be able to say no to a job that is way better than where they're at in life simply to help out some kids for another few years but even if it is unrealistic i don't know if it happened i didn't research that much it is something that is a positive thing to show people the more we can we can do this the more that we can i don't know build strong morals that are transcendent and that go against practicality to show that you know being pragmatic is in everything in life and i feel like 2021 everything is so oriented towards pragmatism that we need to learn about you know humanist qualities again these have to stay with us these old stories these old fables and that's what this serves as to me is it's, it's an old-fashioned story it's a disney story in many ways but it has a level no addiction issues no obsession no major rivalry to contend with that's pushing her further and i loved that about it same, right? And a lot of family issues that are really real. Her sister, uh, her name's Knight, and she, you know, is a very different personality than her. She's going to be more dependent upon men or seek out romance relationships. And that's a different path 
that she's taking and she has her own problems and traumas and we feel for her throughout. And the mother of Fiona, who is played by Lupita Nyong'o and in one of her earlier roles before she rose to, you know, real fame with Black Panther and she's great in this. And she has one of the most interesting ethical dilemmas of everyone. And I actually felt for her and it's a tricky one because she's fearful of her daughter becoming nurtured into this talent because she doesn't want to see her daughter one, be let down and two, be left behind. And so I, I, there's a line in this that really haunted me. And she, she was saying something like, I do not want my daughter to become a ghost living in a shell. And she's talking about in the context of herself. And she was told as a child that her village would never run out of maize and that uh, there would always be mini biscuits to eat. And it's just a very folkloric story, but it's a story that has turned into fear for her because she saw that reality can be harsh sometimes and that there was an endless maze and that perhaps, you know, this really benevolent teacher, Robert Katendi, who wants the best for her daughter and he wants to cultivate her precocious talent might actually harm her in the end if the daughter becomes really smart, becomes a little bit, I don't want to say the word snobby, might not be the right word, but, you know, above selling vegetables at the market, which is where their family is in life, and then stuck in this terrible space of being above and not suited for her environment anymore. And that's really tricky. And I found that really fascinating. Was there any blunders in this movie that you found? Anything that you would want to maybe fix if you had some creative control or any critiques? It's just too long. It's way too long. It has a lengthy bit in the middle and towards the end kind of leading up to the climax where it just really starts to drag. I think a lot of movies do this. You just you start to show kind of the same thing over and over. You have multiple scenes that give the same message about where a person is in life and what they're experiencing. And so pretty much everything leading up to her becoming a chess player for the first time a regular competing tournament player up until like we get to the final final where she's gonna have to go and and try to win in another country the middle section there i kind of start to like lose interest because i'm not seeing anything super new so i just think you know pacing wise issues would be the thing that i would point out but it definitely doesn't ruin the film and it's not egregious in a way that takes anything away from the impact that I get when the movie is over. So it's not bad, bad. Yeah, it's not detrimental on a level that ruins the film by any means, but I think it could have been shaved down by a good 25 minutes easily as well. There's definitely a, a lull in the middle that I felt. It was pretty palpable that eh, let's move this thing along a little bit. But if I had to say one critique, I, I, I almost am hesitant because this would be of all Disney films that kind of try to go in developing countries. To me, having traveled a lot, it sometimes comes off in little spaces as inorganic or uh, inauthentic, but actually this one does so much better at feeling real and feeling that it's coming from Uganda and that they're actually using locals in the scenes and using shots on location that I, I, I appreciated it because uh, sometimes like Mulan this year, it, I don't know, I don't, I, I can't get over that. It, it feels very fake, feels very plastic. It feels very disney but I, this actually 
has some shots of like the wood carving quarters and the bright clothes lines and people carrying jugs of water. And it feels lived in, it feels real. And I haven't researched enough about how much was on location and where it was on location, but it feels like it was on location. Do you know if it was all shot in Uganda? I have no earthly idea. Okay. Definitely feels like it to me. Like they sold me hook, line and sinker if it wasn't. Yeah, they sold me absolutely if it wasn't as well. So it's pretty eclectic with these chess movies. So we're going to move now to Pawn Sacrifice. And I just feel like these are two different worlds, which is pretty interesting to juxtapose them with each other. So Pawn Sacrifice for me had quite a few blunders. So I'm going to actually try to start with you to ask you if you would like to promote anything to use a chess term, right? To promote as in to get from a pawn to a queen. And what did you like about this movie first? Just because I'm predicting perhaps you might have a lot of grievances like I did at times. I liked it more than I thought I might going into it. I think Tobey Maguire was both well cast and also a detriment. So I will say for this that I think when he is at his best as this character, he's fantastic. And he really nails the deteriorating mental health of Bobby Fischer and how he is just increasingly paranoid and becoming unhinged and such. And so I really enjoyed his performance in spots during the film is how I'll put it. I love that this told me more about the story. Like I did not know anything other than Bobby Fischer won a chess match against, you know, Boris Spassky. And that's really it. And he was a genius. And so I felt like this was a pretty enlightening biopic for me. And again, it really just highlighted that whole selfishly demanding personality he had that I wasn't aware of and how socially awkward he was. And it made perfect sense knowing that he went off into disappearing after his win. Like when you watch this and you see kind of like who he was leading up to the match, it's not at all a surprise. So just getting to know some of the backstory was really good to me. I think my biggest takeaway from this is an understanding of what it takes rather to be great at chess, that it comes down to memorization. It was just wild to me to think of it in terms that they explain in this movie about how it's really boiled down to who can memorize and then recognize and react accordingly to the most possible permutations and have them figured out far enough in advance within the confines of a high stress environment situation. That's what chess is. It's not about a physical ability to do something better than your opponent. It's not about necessarily outsmarting someone in the moment as much as it is about just having the ability to recognize what possible things the person could do, calculate in your head percentage chance. I mean, and none of this is like conscious decision making, but this is what is happening in Bobby Fischer or these gene, these grandmasters heads. But it's happening at a level that like when you think about it, it's just insane. It really makes you respect the genius. And so for me, I got that out of it. That's why I'm not good at chess. Like I can't do that. I'm really good at board games and I love strategy board games and I played them all the time. And I can think several moves in advance, which honestly usually means I'm very competitive and win a lot against average people because I'm thinking I'm the guy that is the essential the chess player here. And what I realized is like, I'm nowhere near what it takes to understand how far out and how the depth of the possibilities 
because the game is a game that starts off at the same point every single time, you can do that. So you couldn't do that with every single game out in existence. But because this game has a finite beginning that everybody can move from, then it really is just whittling down these options until you make the most likely correct choice enough times that you're going to win more often than not. I also didn't know until it might have been this movie that these grandmaster matches were multiple matches. Like I thought it was like when, when they said Bobby Fisher beat Boris Baskey, I thought, okay, Bobby Fisher sat down, played Boris Baskey and beat him. And that's like that. I didn't know it was like you had to beat him, you know, 10 out of 20 times or whatever the case was. And that there were these whole, you know, different rules in play for draws and point systems. That was kind of cool. I really liked that. That was very neat as well. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I really didn't. And I'm a pretty big chess aficionado in terms of playing with people. And I know a lot about Bobby Fischer having read about his descent into madness, but I didn't really ever get too into the whole Spassky craze, which this shows. Uh, and that what people still call today the greatest chess game ever played a seminal moment. It's on the grand stage between the the US and the Russia at the height of the Cold War. And it's this weird, paranoid, kooky Brooklyn kid or, you know, New York kid from the boroughs who comes up and takes on the, you know, the Russians who had dominated chess throughout the 20th century. And so chess was everything in Russia. I mean, it goes back to like the 16th century. I, I did a little bit of research and the Cesar Ivan IV died while playing a chess match in 1584. And after the Bolsheviks took power in 1917, it became their national pastime. So like they declared it like the national sport and it's everything to the Russians. And so it's definitely not everything to Americans in the same way, which made it such a big deal because Bobby Fischer was our prodigy. He was our dark horse and he was a bit nutty too. So he was hard to control. So he was our only option because you can't just really easily cultivate genius like that. Let's put it this way to make a comparison and to go on with what you're saying is that there's a lot of permutations. They say in this movie, there's more 40 move games in a chessboard than stars in the galaxy. <laughs> so there is almost an infinite amount of combinations you can make out of this. And a brilliant chess mind like Bobby Fischer may not be that statistically anomalous, but it's close. Like these people don't come along once in a generation even. They come on once a century. And so, yes, he was our sole chance. And that's so interesting because many people didn't like him. The media didn't like him. His agent doesn't really like him. The priest doesn't really like him. These characters are interesting as well. But here I'm going to start to get into a few of what I think are big blunders is even at the end of the film, I don't quite get what Peter Sarsgaard, his character is. I don't really get who the priest is. They don't introduce anyone fully enough. And I think he does a good job. He has great lines. He has great moments in isolated parts. But who is he? Why was he there? I had to Google it. Okay. I figured it out, but I had to Google it. Like and I didn't really understand it all from the movie. And so that's the fault of the movie. So I agree. He's a number, he's called a number two. And essentially, apparently, these high level chess players often have a number two or number three. And so this man's job is to literally travel around and train with him. And what he would do is when Bobby would be sleeping, the number two would be evaluating the games that had taken place and formulating strategies. And then when Bobby would wake up, the number two would then be like, hey, I figured out this is how we need to play. So he's a trainer 
and he helps to facilitate strategy. He's like almost like a teammate in that regard. It was really intriguing. And I didn't get that from the movie completely. I was like, it was very weird inclusion. It, good performance, which is makes it even more weird. But like, it's just this rant, especially because he's a priest. Like that just, you know, from a visual standpoint, it makes it stranger and harder to grasp because you wouldn't expect that. Uh, so yeah, I totally follow what you're saying here. Yeah, there was just so much that was unexplored fully or properly. And that that's my biggest problem with it is I think that, as you said, I was ambivalent towards Tobey Maguire's performance here. And at first, I even wrote in my notes while I'm watching the movie, he's Tobey Maguire's playing it all wrong because I'd watched the 60 Minutes with Bobby Fischer. And I realized as it went on, no, it's not his fault. It's the movie's fault. The movie doesn't really know what to do with his character. It's so all over the place tonally. It even looks all over the place. It's got a weird energy. It's trying to be really hip and flashy at times and have these really quick edited sequences. And it goes from grainy to montage. Suddenly he's in LA and then there's like a weird prostitute at the hotel and then he's on the beach. There's just so many zany scenes and they're trying to go for so many tones that it never really gels for me and it never really gets at a cohesiveness that it needs and so there are moments in this film that I really liked I really liked especially Sarsgaard's long worrisome reflections about whether he's truly going to go mad I think that that's well written uh, in terms of the screenplay and it's well delivered but does it end up standing up does it have an architecture or scaffolding to support it I don't think so and so that's my biggest problem with this movie is that it has moments of brilliance but it's so frustratingly unsupported by the ultimate structure of the film, the ultimate vision of the film that's so lacking. And I'm really getting on it. I want to, I see you shaking your head like in agreement, which I'm glad we're on agreement of this because don't want to be just hating on something. But what did you really like take as the major fault of this film? Well, it's the same performance that I actually liked. And that, it was frustrating because again, I like it in spurts, but the movie spends so much time with him being, I can only use the word unhinged, that it really just wore me down. And this happens with tons of films of this type where a person is like in some sort of downward spiral. I can only take so much of you showing me them repeatedly being a jerk to everyone around them and repeatedly treating people like trash, repeatedly just making these asinine requests and then freaking out all the time and kind of really being quirky and just nutso with their acting. So if we had cut this down some, I think I wouldn't have minded as much because I, I think it's necessary and I think it makes sense for the character. Like you're trying to explain this is how he was. So showing that's fine. But I just think that it was, there's too much of it, way too much of it. And then everything about Live Schreiber's Boris Spassky, I thought he was great. I thought Schreiber was excellent in this film and I really enjoyed how measured Spassky and the Russians were. And I think he was humanized more than Bobby Fischer. And I found myself rooting for him. That's weird. Like, I don't know that the movie needed me to necessarily root for Bobby Fischer. But like the fact that you made it in a way that I actively was hoping Fisher lost is almost betraying the story in a way. And it, it was very, very strange 
for me to have the emotional reaction that I was to this film in kind of the opposite way. Cause like, we're supposed to be glad when Fisher eventually wins. And I was a little bit like, I didn't want anything for that guy. Like I just wanted him to go home. I didn't, I didn't think he'd earned anything or deserved anything. Cause I hadn't found a connection to him the way that I needed to, to care about him other than the fact that he's American, which is a huge pet peeve of mine as a sort of like, I'm not a huge nationalist guy. Like I, I need more than you to just tell me that you've got the same flag flying over your, you know, house or whatever i have to care about you as a person first and i i didn't yeah i agree i was rooting for spasky i i I think that they humanize him so much more and that's the weird part of about this movie is that tricky of a person that bobby fisher is and some of the stuff they showed in this is true i feel like they didn't have any sympathy for him and there is sympathy to be had for this this individual we talked about the 60 minutes episode that i watched and on that he is very unique he's neurotic he is eccentric and bizarre and sensitive you could tell he rejects a, a cake for his birthday why does he reject that cake on 60 minutes i'm talking about the real life bobby fisher i think it's because he has a very punctilious regimen he's very strict with himself and he's basically monastic and they don't explore any of this we basically get two hours of uh toby mcguire being paranoid and looking for bugs and lamps that's not telling us anything really about his psyche and then this will be forever one of the greatest blunders in a movie to me is that we have the crux of the movie comes down he needs to play in this ping pong hall right it's a huge ordeal you know it's it's a good scene where he freaks out on stage and he's looking at the camera and stuff that that that's good drama and it's an interesting dynamic and scenario and they finally move and that this shows a great competitive moment of heroism for Spassky. He could have easily took the win by by default of Bobby Fischer not being willing to play on the main stage, right? He was going to have to surrender, right? He was going to have to forfeit the tournament. But Spassky says, no, I want to play him. And so he goes to the ping pong hall. Another reason why we're rooting for him. But what's so weird about this is two things. One, they suddenly show Spassky flipping out and looking for a sort of bug or camera. And why he is, we kind of understand that, you know what, they are probably being bugged a lot by the Russians, right? That, that That's a known fact in all of this. But I don't know why they show that there or what they're trying to say. And they don't seem to know what they're trying to say there either. And what really upset me, is, I haven't ex- said it yet. It's that on the fifth or the sixth game, the big game, what they say is the biggest game of this like 12 game, you know, tournament. They go back to the main stage and they don't explain why Bobby Fisher is suddenly willing to go back to the main stage when it was such a big deal is utterly absurd. How do you leave that out? Boggles my mind. It's just utterly bad, bad screenwriting. And so that's it. I have nothing really else to say about this movie. Uh, Do you have anything? Do you want to move on? No, I mean, I think you're right. I I mean, I'm glad I watched this one. So there may be something else in this list that I'm not glad I watched, but this is one that I would have never watched had it not been for this podcast episode with you. And I'm content knowing that I checked it out. I didn't hate it and actively despise it the entire time I watched it. Um, So it wasn't that bad for me. But yeah, ultimately, it definitely doesn't stand up as anything I ever want to see again. Same. Yeah, it actually has really strong parts, which is why it's such a letdown. It could have been really great. And so we're going to go on to by far the most idiosyncratic and weird film. I feel like this is Austin weird. It's from a director that comes from Texas and it probably doesn't fit in the sports genre by any stretch of the imagination besides the fact that there is a competition going on, but it's not even really a chess competition. It's a programming competition. So it is very unique. 
It comes from Andrew Buchowski, who is known as the godfather of mumblecore. And that makes a lot of sense now. Yes. And it has a different approach to its subject that is not going to appeal to sports movies fans out there. So I know this took you by surprise. Your review is really hilarious. What was your reaction when you saw this? Well, my, my letter, but I'll read it. I just said, ha 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 ha. And that was literally me laughing. And I said, I thought this was an actual documentary about the history of programming machines to play chess. Joke's on me. And yeah, it's not about chess really at all. I mean, chess is there occasionally, but it is not about chess. And so what happened is, and I'm going to blame you, you get some blame. You don't get all the blame because you didn't recommend this to me. You didn't like say, Aaron, you should check this movie out. If you'd have done that, then I would definitely be throwing shade your way. But it was on your list of like favorite sports films. So I assumed seeing also Bobby Fischer on your list that, okay, well, it's a movie about chess. And so then I just I randomly threw it in. And this is not my thing at all whatsoever. I, I don't love this quirky, weird, awkwardy type of stuff. It, it drives me just nuts. And it was a struggle to get through this to the point where I probably couldn't tell you the plot straight through. I remember, you know, brief moments of it. I was checking my phone as much as I could. I was on my computer. I was checked out because this had zero interest for my personal, you know, attention span. And I do not get the love for it. There's some people on my letterbox who just absolutely adore it. And I'm talking like, this is that kind of divisive style of filmmaking where you get people who are like four and a half, five stars. And, and then there's people like me who are like, huh, you know? There is a kind of an interesting twist at the end, and I will say from a perspective of it being about man's relationship to AI and programming and the potential dangers of that, that part of it is an interesting concept. I love sci-fi, and I really am just drawn to any story about AI that starts to come alive and have its own actions and, and think for itself. So there's an element of that going on here. And, and I like that topic, but I hated how it was depicted in this. I, I just, I don't know what else I can say other than just to continue to dump on how much I don't like it. So I, I don't think I enjoyed it at all. And I would love an actual documentary as I thought this was because it was black and white and I was dumb and started to assume. But I would love a true documentary about how computer chess became a thing and how computers were taught to eventually play and defeat grandmasters and like what kind of thought processes went into the programming of making that work and making that happen and stuff. But yeah, no, that's not what this movie was. <laughs> Absolutely not. To come into this thinking it's a, a documentary about computer chess is hilarious because even if you're coming into it knowing that it's a mumblecore director, it's going to throw you for a curveball. Even if you come in into it knowing that it's going to be just sort of a comedy of manners, it throws you for many more curveballs. This is a really weird shape-shifting film. And I'm not going to try to convince you by any stretch. It's not going to work. We're going to have to like just speak in different realms because I am one of those hypothetical people on Letterboxd who give it four and a half to five stars. I adore this movie. That's why you did see it on the top, I think 10 of my all-time sports movies because it's technically a sports movie. I adore its raw artistry that comes from a, a space of low budget, 
lots of ideas, lots of ambitions, but it is slapdash. It's a weird cocktail of tones and genres and narratives, and some don't work for me. So what I do love is the dialogue and the cinematic richness. I love the overlapping murmuring of people, the way that they obfuscate the central conversation at times. It's a very Robert Altman technique. And I like the strange edits, the playful psychedelic movements. It is a lark. It feels like a student's film, like a grad student's film. It feels like a amateur product, yet there is a level of ingenuity throughout this that keeps someone like me on my toes. And I was trying to think of all of the the things that evoked in me on my third viewing now. And it's been a while since it was my last viewing. I watched it twice in a row when I first saw this in like 2012 or 13 when it came out and I haven't seen it since. And if I would say anything to people out there who want to know what it's like, it's, I mean, it's not like much, but it's kind of like a Christopher Guest mockumentary, right? Like kind of like Best in Show or Waiting for Guffman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then you got to throw in like a little bit of like Harmony Kareen in that mumblecore genre. Uh, There's a character that's kind of like Napoleon Dynamite in it my least favorite character. Hopefully I'll have time to touch on that later. But then he's kind of crude and really annoying and I did not like him at all. And then it's got a weird ex machina twist at the end. So it gets this weird sci-fi space and they're touching upon some themes. They're not really explicitly ever going where you would think they would go or going to really flush them out to the fullest degree because, you know, we have this interesting dichotomy of these really erudite geeks who are immersed in 1980s computer culture. And then you have another conference going on in the hotel, which is kind of like new age, suburban, mystical swingers who they're trying to say something to me about like people who are more of the mind and people who are more of the body. And they have moments in which they are getting at subtly rich ideas, I think, but they only want to flirt with them. And never does a film, I think, try to slam something over your head too much. And that's both its greatest feat, but it's also kind of a flaw for many people who want a strong and really cohesive a story. And it's none of that, right? This thing is, it's just a slight little scribbling of a film. It's its very bizarre. But I just want to ask if you could promote one thing, because I know it's, it, if you're not on board with this, it, it's just like going to estrange you and alienate you. What would it be? What would be one silver lining you would find here to promote? Mm-hmm. I I mean, if I don't have, if you like the stuff you're describing, then yeah, go for it. There's nothing I like about it. Like the, I gave it a two stars for me. That's a disappointed or not like, like the only reason I go to one star is if I'm offended by something to the point where I just think it's trash. I don't think this is trash. I think it is something that is not for me in any way, shape or form. I, okay. I like the fact that it's in black and white. I do appreciate the cinematography and the idea of a mockumentary because I and I don't always hate mockumentaries so the stylistic choice of it being a quote mockumentary or documentary type of filmed movie if it was actually about what I thought it was going to be and it was more serious but yet with this same cinematography I would be fine so I guess we'll go with that fair enough and it is kind of interesting it's really ugly black and white if you've recently watched something like Malcolm and Marie it's not intentionally be- yeah. yeah, it's not trying yeah. to be pretty. No, it, That's the it, thing. It's yeah. it's supposed to be older, you know, and it's kind of of its era. Absolutely. It looks like a tutorial video created by a company in the 1980s, and it was used with old technology. It's a two vintage camera 
with vacuums. So I'm just bringing that detail. I, I found that spec, but it's interesting. He's using these old cameras from the 80s. So he wants this really vintage, authentic look. So there is a lot of technical aspects that mirror the film and its retro vibe. So moving on to another very strange movie, a very recent movie that completely went under the radar for me. And I found it like a few days ago and noted, noted it to you because we're both into spy movies lately and talking about spy movies. And it's a marriage of the two genres. It's chess and spy together. But I'd never heard of this. It's a Netflix original. And it is a strange one. And I want to hear what was your main promotion from this film? What, what did you like about it? <laughs> what did I like about it? It's an interesting premise. I, I think that the idea is cool. Taking the Cold War chess match, essentially, of Fisher and Spassky and turning it into a fictional spy movie surrounding that match kind of building upon the actual paranoia of the era and just exaggerating it into this really intriguing concept is a really interesting premise and i truly believe that if you would have taken this movie this idea and you would have put it in the hands of someone like a spielberg who's made bridge of spies i think with you know star actors and a solid experienced screenwriter and a little bit more of a budget and a production company behind it that could help kind of guide decision making. I think this could be the idea of like a blockbuster spy flick. I really do <laughs> like the marriage of sports movie and spy, flick. like really cool idea. It really, really is like an alternative fiction kind of thing. I'd almost say you should set it as Bobby Fischer and Spassky and just, you know, bill it as if it was like an Eric Larson book or something. And so I really loved the idea when I read it. And even as the movie was going on, that's part of my disappointment was I just kept getting like, man, this is so cool. But why'd they do that? Why'd they do that? Why'd they do that? Why'd they do that? So that was my main takeaway was just how amazing of a concept this was. I utterly agree. It's an amazing concept that is terribly executed on almost every level. It feels not only low budget like computer chess, but like it's a low budget film that tries to fake being a high budget film. And that's even worse. It's like you should have just worked within your means in my mind and really gone out there since you're like a low budget film. The acting is atrocious throughout and there's some charm to it because I do like seeing new faces and besides Bill Pullman I didn't recognize a single person in this movie but man do they feel like b-level c-level actors I don't really like to critique actors too much but everything here felt stilted and just ungainly it didn't feel natural and perhaps it's not their fault perhaps it's the director's fault the vibe on the set and Bill Pullman is perhaps worse of all the only thing that I can say to perhaps give him some credit is that this was supposed to be William Hurt's role. And during like the first week of production, he suffered, suffered an accident while walking home from the set and had to be replaced last second. So Pullman was flown out to Warsaw where they shot this movie to Poland in the middle of winter where it's freezing cold. He's learning his lines on the spot and it just feels like he's on the cuff in the worst possible way. And man, is his portrayal of alcoholism the most buffoonish, unrealistic portrayal I've almost ever seen? I read a quote where someone said, it is as if he's playing, and this is a little bit of an esoteric reference, but Charles Bukowski, which is a famous 
famous drunk novelist who's based in LA acting like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. I just thought it was hilarious. It cracked me up, but you'd have to pull out the craziest explanation to try to explain how off he is in his portrayal of a drunkard. It's so bad, so bad. I, I could not get on board for a single second of this film. And the sad part is it's a really interesting plot. And I was watching it late at night and wanted to refresh the plot. And I read it online after. And the plot is pretty interesting and cool. Like you said, it's like a good Tom Clancy novel and a chess sports movie synthesized together. Does not work as a film. What was your biggest blunder that you took from this film? The same thing as you. I, Bill Pullman crushed this movie for me, like in a bad way. And I, and I hate saying that because I love the guy. But literally from the first scene with him, I was like, what is he doing? He's not going to be like this the whole movie. And then he was like that the entire movie. And it just was so stupid. So I won't pile on because everything you said, I say ditto. And in addition to that, it is a tonal mess. This director, it's a first time direction and it is very clear. The person has no idea how to consistently craft a good thriller. There are moments of good thriller stuff in here of heightened suspense and use of sound editing and sound mixing to assist that but then it's just all over the place there are moments of like almost pure comedy that you're like what is happening right now and why are these characters acting this way it just has no consistent tone at all it's all over the place and comedy suspense scary tries to be like a horror and bloody at times it's very strange and it wants to capture the game of chess as if it's like a legit representation and that kind of bothered me so there's a chess match and the very first chess match in fact of the big moment big scene or big tournament and this guy loses the match because of a pawn like it's something that is not ever supposed to happen he's a russian grandmaster and he loses in a way that is quite almost insulting and i don't even know chess but i know enough having watched all of these movies and queen's gambit to know that it would be insulting that he would ever lose to this specific like simplistic kind of thing it led me to wanting to look up like what is going on and i actually found someone who broke down the chess in this movie match by match by match and they hated the movie but they were praising the fact that each of these chess matches was a specific representation of a very famous game and a very famous strategy that had actually worked at one point in time. So I was like, okay, that's really cool, but I didn't get any of that from the movie. Like the movie did not make it seem that way or make me understand that. And like you said, Pullman's character, so the premise being that Pullman's character is this professor now who 20 years ago beat a guy who became a grandmaster at chess for the US that grandmaster was supposed to play the Russian grandmaster and dies or something. And so Pullman then, because there's this rule, which I don't know if that's real or not, but God help me if it is, it's the stupidest thing ever. But the rule being that the last person to beat this grandmaster can replace them in the tournament. And so then 20 years later, Pullman gets pulled off the street, you know, as a professor to go replace this guy in this game against a grandmaster of chess. It's kind of dumb, that part. But He's so buffoonish that you can't take the chess seriously. And so it just completely undercuts anything about 
the chess itself that we're getting to see. And yet the movie wants you to take it seriously and yet coerces this performance that is 100% at odds with what it seemingly wants you to feel when you're watching it. And it just, it is, oh man, it was a struggle to get through. It was like the definition of what you think of a lot of times when you say Netflix original or when people complain about Netflix just pumps out content and all these movies that nobody cares about. Well, this is why, because sometimes we get this. Yeah, it's uh, abysmal at times. And the the problem, once again, is that there is so much potential here. The double agent, the hypnotist, give this material in the hands of someone who can do something with it. And we have a great film. And some of the actual scenes kind of look cool. Like the safe room he wakes up in has a really neat aesthetic to it. And the idea of this secret tunnel has got a really cool idea. Not a big endorser of alcoholism, but they have a unique psychological situation in which this guy can only function and play well when he's drinking. And they explain it in, in interesting terms, using like very psychological, medical, scientific jargon. I found that kind of an interesting sequence uh you know in which he he like without it operates too fast and so he needs to slow down his mind i mean they have so much under the surface here that could have been realized or actualized into something good it wasn't it it just wasn't it netflix original when it gets tainted with the connotations that we uh, sometimes put upon that term. If you want the ideal form of that, this is your film. <laughs> this should go down in the history of like Netflix original of that side. There are actually some really good ones out there as well. Just tune into the episode with Jed. We go all over the good ones with the Netflix originals as well. So it's a mixed bag with those originals. You got to get into the weird parts of the, uh, parts of the algorithm for those. So interesting discussion. We're both on board for a lot of these films. And I say maybe one, I think it's where we have the major, it's not a rift, but like completely dichotomous uh, spaces. So we're at that point where we're going to rank all of these chess films and should we throw queen's gambit in this list yeah i think we should and it's hard because it is a mini series and it's got so much more meat to it but i think that we have a balanced take on where it fits aesthetically in terms of quality as well so i think why not let's throw it in there so we have six different pieces of art i have to say now films and miniseries to work with and i will let you go first as a good host. And I'm kind of predicting what you're going to say, but there might be a few mix-ups in here. So, so uh, six then at the bottom, we'll go from the bottom to the top. So six for me would be computer chess. The one that's not about chess. Five would be the coldest game. Four would be pawn sacrifice. Three would be queen of Katway. Two would be the queen's gambit. And one would be searching for Bobby Fischer. Solid. So I'm just going to throw mine out there. Cause we talked about them so much. We don't need to extrapolate my number six easily the coldest game my number five is already kind of tough for me but i'm gonna go with pawn sacrifice my number four and i really feel bad doing this because i like this movie a lot but we're already getting in the good territory is queen of catway it's not a knock on it my number three searching for bobby fisher my number two computer chess because i love the quirk it's the only one I'm going to quickly qualify a little bit. If you love the film Primer by Carruth, it's completely different. That one's more of a heady intellectual time travel one that gets so crazy. To me, it's kind of like that. It's a low budget film that has a lot of ideas. That's why I love it. Okay, and that out of the way. My number one is The Queen's Gambit. I've watched it twice now, fully through in the past year. It's just so decadent and rich. And I will probably watch it 
again every few years. I just think it hits every beat and I love the cultures it shows. I love the emotional relationships it shows. Great miniseries. So this has been a ton of fun. I think we really, man, went on a bender with chess movies. And I just want to thank you for coming on. You plugged yourself for the last episode, but please plug yourself again really quickly to let everyone who's a new listener for this episode know where to find you. Best place you can find me is on Twitter at Feelin Film, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M. You can find my podcast, Feelin Film, F-E-E-L-I-N apostrophe, F-I-L-M. Anywhere on any podcast catcher you can have. It's on Spotify, etc. Feelinfilm.com. You can find all the episodes there if you want to find us on the web. And then basically, if you go to one of my podcast episodes, there are show notes and all of my links are there. And you can come find links to my Facebook group and anywhere else you want to come talk to me online. And I love that stuff. So, I mean, come at me. Come at me about my opinions on just films all you want. And I'm ready to go to battle with you if you'd like. Come at him, as he says. So he's he's giving you the invite. And I recommend you do so. So thank you again for coming on. It was a blast. Thank you for having me.